0: how good it is that the Lord is with us this morning and that even before we showed up here this morning, he went before us and he welcomes us with open arms and says, yes, my, my people, my children, he loves us and he is, he is faithful. We're going to be in uh, Malachi chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 through 3. So if you'd be turning your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4, um, and you should remember the, the great indicative, we've talked about this pretty much every, uh, every, every sermon we've done in Malachi, the great indicative spoken over you, the, the people of God, in the opening chapters of, of Malachi. I have loved you. I have loved you. God, God loves you. There's no better fact for you in the universe, no more exciting the declaration, no more strong and unshakable an assurance, no better friend, nor father, nor love or Lord, and no more sweet and tender and present a comfort than this. God loves you. Don't be overwhelmed at the call to obedience. Don't slink away from it in despair. Take heart, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Or put another way, he who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Even a d- deeper desire for obedience? Yeah, even that. So hold fast to Him. This morning we'll hear from Malachi 4 about the certainty of the day of the Lord, that day when Jesus comes to bring judgment on all those who have rejected Him and blessing, blessing to all those who have held on to Him by faith. We know from other places in the Bible, like uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that the day of the Lord includes the resurrection of the dead and uh, the certainty uh, that we will be gathered to Jesus to live with Him forever. So Malachi's message straight away raises uh, an important question for us, and, and that's how often do we think about the resurrection and the life to come? What role does that kind of meditation have in your growth in Christian maturity? As you think about that, hear what John Calvin had to say about it. He said, "'We can see why true faith is so rare.'" Our lethargy makes it very difficult for us to overcome countless hurdles as we strive toward the prize of our high calling. A huge load of unhappiness almost overwhelms us, and the scorn of unbelievers upsets us. We gladly give up the attractions of this life, but then seem to be chasing our elusive shadow as we seek for hidden happiness. In short, we feel under attack, above and below, back and front, from fierce temptation. Our minds would be powerless to resist, unless they've been freed from earthly attachments and given to heavenly. We can only make real progress in the gospel when we've acquired the habit of meditating all the time on the hope of resurrection." Meditating all the time on the hope of resurrection. And the reason that's true is because we know how uncertain our own hearts can be, how sometimes strong the temptation to give up on the Lord can sometimes be, and how manifold are the sorrows of this present life. And so we ought to be meditating all the time on the hope of the resurrection and so that we can make real progress in the gospel. We can know deeply that the Lord loves us and is for us in everything. Let's see it from the text itself. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is what it says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. From these verses we can observe at least three things. The first is that God has total control over history, and his judgment is certainly coming. In answer to the implicit question, where is God in the world, these verses show us that the answer is He's over all and in control of all. And we know this because He promises a certain day of judgment when He will totally judge all the arrogant and all the evildoers. And that implies that He sees all the arrogant and all evildoers, and He knows what's in their hearts. It implies that He is able to judge them, and He is not prevented from doing so uh, by anyone outside of Himself or anything outside of himself. It's only because of his mercy and his good pleasure that God's final judgment did not fall upon the world this morning, but it will not always be so. A day is coming when God will certainly judge the world. Now, what do we do with language like this? It's a hard thing for us to hear, even as believers who have the confidence that we are washed in the blood of Christ and do not need to fear God's judgment because it has fallen on Christ on our behalf. Even for us who know that we will one day Rise from the dead with him in glory and spend our lives with him. It's a hard thing to hear, and there's no simplistic answer to that feeling, but we must remember two things, both of which we can see in our text. The first is that all of us live and die before the Lord. God is not like an absentee landlord who randomly shows up from time to time to collect the rent and make sure you haven't broken anything, only to then disappear. No, God's not like that. He is intimately concerned with your life. He fashioned you and you bear his image. He knows you by name. He's called you to something much better than the deceitful promises of sin, something much better than they can ever provide. So his his judgment is not arbitrary, as though it springs out of nowhere with accounts you didn't know you had. No, all of us must reckon with God, and when we reject him, we do so willfully, and in the belief that we are more than a match for his justice, and that's a foolish thing to do. But the second thing we need to remember is that God's justice is a perfect justice. It doesn't charge people for wrongs they've not committed. When all accounts are settled at the last day, no one will be able to charge God with unfairness. He will render perfect justice to all. At the present time, we sometimes struggle to think what this will look like. And we should never speak of the judgment of the wicked without tears in our eyes. We cry over the horrendous nature of sin and the destruction it brings. And we hope in faith that at the last day we will see the justice and goodness of God's dealings with every person. It's a hard thing to imagine. But just as we know from our text that more is going on than we can presently see, so we can trust that all who put their faith in Jesus will one day see and be able to rejoice in God's perfect justice when it comes in all its fullness. The second thing we see from our text is that on the day when God acts, he will bring complete healing and joy to his people. The judgment of God is truly a fearful reality, but there are two people addressed in our text. On the one hand, the arrogant and all evildoers are promised a certain day of judgment. On the other hand, a second group of people, those who fear God's name, are given a blessed future. When we are sad or anxious or afraid, the world is a little less bright and cheerful, but the salvation of God is like the rising sun. It illuminates our world and burns away the fog of unbelief. It causes the world to come alive again. So it will be on the last day for all of God's people. However difficult things seem to you now, a day is coming when God's justice and His goodness and His presence will be plain. Faith will give way to sight. The Son of Righteousness will come and illuminate our world. And we know this ultimately refers to Jesus because Zechariah speaks about Jesus in his uh, prophecy over him in Luke chapter 1. He refers even to this verse. And this means that we as believers share in the healing that Jesus brings. It means that we share in his triumph, his ultimate triumph over all evil. So the day of the Lord has a different destiny in store for us, the people of God. This is the day of our resurrection to, to eternal life. This is the day when Jesus comes again in glory to finally and totally make all things new. He will bring healing in his wings. The curse and ravage of sin will finally be done away with. Death will be no more. The troubles of this present life will become a distant memory in the face of the overwhelming glory of our risen, exalted Savior people of Malachi's day needed to hear this because they needed a firm reason to resist the commodified view of religion that had become so pervasive in their culture. They needed a firm hope in the love and promises of God that would enable them to persevere despite the temptation to give up on God. And we need the same thing. We need to know that the suffering and trouble of this present world are not the final word for those who are in Christ. The greatest security that can be found can be found only in Jesus. What do we base our plans in this life upon? What receives the greatest attention in our thinking? Is discipleship and growth and grace the ultimate concern with you? Do you make your plans for the future, for the health of your family, for your job, for the use of your money, for the way you spend your time in the same way that the world does? Or do you seek in all of these things to consider how it will impact your ability to know and love Jesus better. Whenever we try to get a better grip on the things that we love in this world and try to shore them up and preserve them from destruction and make sure they never go away, or maybe to get more excitement in our lives or to increase the hopes that we once had but that seem to be so far gone, and we do it without reference to how it will impact our ability to know Jesus, we find that they're like shadows. They always go out of our grasp. But when we have Jesus, we have everything that we need and everything that we love, if we love Him. And that's why it's so important to meditate over the resurrection, because unless you're convinced that the big sacrifices it will really take to press in to know Jesus are ultimately worth it, the temptation to depart from God and walk in the way of the world will always be strong, and it will be hard to resist it. And you'll rob yourself of the joys of knowing Christ better than you do now. Yeah, it's true, life has many tears, but hold on to Jesus, there's a blessed future and hope for all those who do. And that leads me to the third thing our text teaches us, and that's that the joy of God's people in the day when He acts is an unbounded joy. The metaphor of a leaping calf may be lost on many of us who didn't grow up in a rural area or on a farm, but it would not have been lost on the Israelites. When calves are finally released from their barn stalls, probably after a long winter time and in time into the springtime pastures, they cannot help but to leap about. It's a, it's a funny thing to see. You might even like to look it up on YouTube. You can see some cows prancing in the springtime pastures. It's, it's kind of funny. Well, this is the kind of joy that God's people will experience when the fullness of his kingdom finally comes in perfection. We won't be able to help ourselves but to leap about. The evil that once seemed so dominant, the troubles that are such trials to us in the present time, will be ashes under our feet, meaning we won't notice them anymore. There will be a great reversal, too. Whenever we may look around and wonder if the long, hard fight for purity and knowing God is really worth it, whenever we may be tempted to be discouraged because we see so many who do not give one thought for God, nonetheless prospering, we may be sure of this, it will be very different on the day of the Lord. Righteousness will be vindicated. The care we took to know God will be shown to be the one thing that really mattered. The charge that following God doesn't really matter will be exposed as laughable foolishness. So here, are what Ian Duguid and Matthew Harmon have to say about this. They say, We are often tempted to read God's attitude toward us from our circumstances. If life is going well, we think it means that God loves us. While if we're in the pit of trial and difficulty, it means that God doesn't see us or care about us. In the passage, the God-fearers could not read God's favor from their circumstances. They were still stuck in the same morass of visible problems as before. What they needed to do was to read their circumstances in the light of God's favor. God declared that they were his treasure. They belonged to him and he would not let them go. Jesus will not let you go. He will never fail you. Though we have, uh, and many times we have, sometimes given up on Him, and may we, may we, many times we are so overwhelmed that we feel we cannot go on, Jesus has gone on before us, and He will save all who are His to the uttermost. Go to Him, all who are weak and needy. Cling to Him, cling to Him, and don't let go. There's a blessed future and hope for you, in the Savior. So what does Malachi 4, 1-3 teach us? At least three things. One, God has total control over history, and His judgment is certainly coming. On that day, God will bring complete healing and joy to His people. And the joy of God's people in the day when He acts is an unbounded joy. Don't miss that. In the day when God acts, God will certainly act for His people. And all the trials of this present life will seem a distant memory in the face of the overwhelming glory that is ours because of our inheritance with Christ Jesus. So cling to him, hold fast to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. Though we are many times overwhelmed with this life, many times we feel the temptation and pull of sin, of our old natures, and we wonder if it really is worth it to follow you. Is there any benefit in following God? And yet you give us abundant reason to know that there is, because we are Jesus's, and he has overcome death for us, and he has promised us an inheritance and a future that is even beyond our imagining. So Lord, help us to cling to him, to not be found following after the worthless idols of this present world, whatever they may be for us, but instead to do all we can to know you better, to lean in to the good promises of the gospel and never let go. And Lord, thank you that though oftentimes we do let go, that we are weak and needy, that you have been faithful for us. and You wrap us up in your love, and you do not let us go. Let us be reminded of that fact and find our joy in you in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.